If you'd like to, you can go ahead and be turning your Bibles to Psalm 22. Just being here has gotten me filled with emotion. Because you guys know me, you know that that's a bad thing. (laughs) The regret that I have is that Ashlyn is not here to share this with me. And I apologize to you all. She is my better half. And so you're getting a raw deal tonight, uh, me without her. Um, She's staying at home with uh, our youngest daughter, Elsie, who came down with something yesterday. Uh, We have a lot of kids, so the odds are against us when it comes to sickness. Um, But she really wanted to be here and sends her greetings. We have many fond memories uh, when we think back to our time here. Um, We were here for seven years. And so just looking around and seeing your faces, uh, it just really fills me up. And uh, see, I told you it was a bad bad thing. I I was already primed and ready. Um, But I just want you all to know that that I believe that in Ephesians 4, that when it's talking about the, the gifts that God has given to the church, it's it's people. And you were a gift to us. A a really uh, important time in our life. And when I look back on our time here, I know that we grew. And it was because of this church. And so I just want to say thank you to y'all. And encourage you to keep doing what you you do. And I love you. All right, I made it. (laughs) So we can go. We can get started. I also want to say that the, the people that mean so much to me, this is, that you'll see how this segues, is that Paul, uh, Paul, he, uh, I love that guy. He is, Paul is a Barnabas. I, I hope you guys know that you have a Barnabas. And Paul is still texting me. I've been gone now since 2017. And Paul, when he has a thought, he texts me. And it fills me up. I get, I get texts from Paul. And um, uh, he's all over the place. I know on the highways and byways. And, uh, and on his way all around, he gets around. And, um, and it's funny because he texted me and he was telling me some encouragement in thinking about the words of Jesus on the cross. And that's actually where we're going to start uh, tonight, um, is, is with a statement that Jesus makes. How do I get this, this to come on? Do I have to initiate? Let's see here. I promise I've worked a PowerPoint before. Let's see if I can get this to... There it is. Okay. On the cross, Jesus says some things. And if you think about what Jesus was going through on the cross, His words were few. And likely that is because breath came at a great price. And so He chose His words carefully as He fought to breathe, as He hung there. And so everything that he said on the cross has great meaning to us. And one of the most shocking things that he says while he's hanging on the cross is he says the words that we all are familiar familiar with. He says in Hebrew, but he says the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just hearing those words come out of Jesus' mouth is, is something that's so hard for us. And our questions that come, that follow, are, are, are many. And, and, and the main question that we all have is, did God really forsake 
Jesus on the cross. And I think that as we, can, we contemplate that, I don't think that it's a bad thing for us to think about. And I think that there's a lot of things that people say in response to that and trying to figure out why Jesus would say this. What did he mean? And certainly we know what comes to mind is Psalm 22, where we're going to spend our time tonight. But what I'd like to offer to you is that recently I was studying the Psalms. I had the, uh, the, the, the benefit and the blessing to get to teach the Psalms. And anybody in here that is taught knows that it is a greater blessing for you than anyone that's listening. And, and, and it came, the, the Psalms became something that have, have come to mean a great deal to me. And I think that on the cross that Jesus is teaching us something about how we can use the Psalms. And I think that a lot of times we jump first to, in the case of Psalm 22, is we know that there's prophecy that's being fulfilled in that Psalm. And so we immediately jump there. And we think about that, but we don't ask the first question. And the first question that we should ask is, did God forsake David? The one who initially penned those words. And so in Psalm 22, we're going to start, and I know that I have changed the question here. Have you forsaken me? But hopefully we can talk about this, and I can tell you why I've modified it slightly. So let's, let's go, and, let's, and again, remember, what we're asking is, is that David was not a passive party. That's, that's sometimes how we think of how inspiration works, is that it just, it's just words that the Spirit comes through him, and, and that he's just kind of, he wakes up, and it's like, oh, there it is. I just penned this song. No, David was an active participant. It was God's Spirit and David's Spirit together. That's inspiration. And so David is actually talking from his own perspective. And the question that we're asking is, did God forsake David? And is that the purpose of this psalm? Is, is, to, is to tell us that David found himself in a place where God did forsake him. And so let's begin. In Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Before we jump even into these verses, there's something that oftentimes we miss. Uh, because as you know, in your Bible, there are a lot of things that are in your Bible that are not actually inspired. There's headings, there's uh, verse numbers, there's a lot of things that make it in there that we know that, well, that's just something that has been supplied. The, super, the, 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 the first part there, to the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David, that, that, is original, that was a part of the original Psalm. And if you've read the Psalms, you know that a lot of times those things, you, you, you blow by those and you lose something there, that there's a context that's given that tells us what's going on in David's life when he pins the words of the psalm. But if you notice, in this case, he doesn't tell us. He just tells us that there apparently was a tune that was called uh, the, the, uh, the Doe of the Dawn. I'm sure it was beautiful, but we, we don't know what it sounded like. But we also don't find out the occasion that it was that David wrote this psalm. And so I'm wondering, well, what could have driven him to this place? And I think that's by design. Because I think that there's times in David's life, if you know the story of David, that there are multiple times in his life that you would, you, if you heard him say these words, you, you, as a fellow human, you might say, I understand why you find yourself there in that place. In fact, it may actually resonate with you that you think that, that a person who dealt with all the pain of his children, of 
bearing a stillborn child. Of having his own sin found out. Of running from someone that he loved and only ever did good for, Saul. He respected him and he respected his position, but he was constantly on the run because he wanted to kill him for no reason. He was a victim of injustice, of great injustice. And I imagine that when he was in a cave, asleep with a rock for a pillow, that maybe he contemplated these thoughts. What about when his son drove him out of his kingdom? When he had to walk in a procession out of the city as his son was taken over, and as a fool threw rocks at him and cursed him? What about the time when he had to play like he was insane to protect his own life? In those instances, you might understand why somebody might feel like David does in this case. But the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's shocking to hear somebody that you know had such a relationship with God that would even suggest such a thing. It shocks us, and we think that's almost scandalous. Why would you even suggest that God would turn his back on you? But there's already hints in the words that he uses that we know that David doesn't actually believe it. The fact that he calls him my God, my God, this relational term, this, 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 this deep trusting relationship is the reason why he's crying out. The fact that he's even talking to God. Can you think about in a relationship? I mean, many people in here are married. A thousand fights. You would choose that over your spouse saying absolutely nothing, wouldn't you? That what if your spouse got to the point that they said, I don't even care anymore. It's not even worth taking it to that person because I just don't, I don't feel anything with them. I don't care anymore. The fact that David is bringing this to God tells you that he's not given up on God. And that I don't think he believes that God has actually given up on him. And the other thing is that whatever it is that David is going through, what's amazing and what's remarkable is that he loves God so much that the thing that hurts him, potentially worse than the thing itself, is the thought that God might not be there with him. You see that in his psalm of confession when he's telling God he's sorry for his sin, he says, don't take your spirit from me. David loved God so much that the thought that God would not be there with him, the distance that he felt in whatever moment that this, this happened, is the thing that hurts the words for him. And so although he's saying, I know that the question of why are you, have you forsaken me and have you forsaken me are two different things, but I think that this is ultimately what David is doing is he's coming to God and he believes that their relationship is big enough for him to challenge God in this way. And he moves on. And the flow of this, again, it's, it's instructive for us. Can you imagine? Think of all the people that existed between the time when David penned this and when Jesus came. And think of all the things that happened to God's people. 
Can you imagine being in exile? Can you imagine that you thought that you knew what your life was going to be about? Can you imagine being Daniel, who assumed that maybe he was going to be a priest in the temple? Or Ezekiel? And all of a sudden finds himself in a foreign place, given foreign names, his identity being uh, fading into obscurity. Can you imagine that place? And I imagine that in those times that the people of God savored these words. They thought, our king, the ideal king, he went through something too. And he took it to God, and he worked through it. How am I supposed to do that? And he, he teaches us. And here, in this, in this kind of second stanza, Yet you are holy, verse 3, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You see what he's doing here? In the moment of doubt, when he's wondering, where are you, God? He draws on what he knows to be true of God. He knows that he is the high and holy God. And is that good news? Yes, it is. Because we're going to talk about the strong bulls of Bashan that are coming, and they aren't going to stand up to the high and holy God. There's nothing that can stand up to my God. Is he strong enough? If the question is, either I find myself in a place of great suffering and trial, maybe God is not strong enough to deliver me, or maybe he doesn't care. Those are the options. And David is sitting here inside and internal to himself, and he's contemplating, and he's saying, well, I know my God is strong enough. My God is the high and holy creator enthroned on the praises of Israel. And he also draws on what he knows to be true through the experience of God's people and what, they've, what he's heard from God's people. And what is that experience? It's that those who put their trust in God have been delivered. And he knows that that's true. And you can, and you can see that he's, just, he's hanging on to this. He's not going to let go. He's not going to believe that God has actually forsaken, forsaken him. I know who you are, God. You are faithful. You are holy. And you don't let your people, you don't let go of your people. They trust, and they're not put to shame. But that's also, at the same time, maybe part of the problem. Maybe part of the doubts that David has. And I think that this is really where the question of this entire psalm is found at its, at its sharpest point. Why would David doubt that God would be there with him? Why would he think that there would be distance between him and his God? And I think that this is it right here. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you see the problem? From where he's, where he's just come. You are the high and holy God who is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Where's David find himself? I'm a worm. I'm a nobody. Could it be that I've gone to a place that the high and holy God just will, just will not go? Have you ever witnessed somebody when you were in school? 
I'd like to think that we've all come through maturity enough that we would know to stand up for somebody that we see that's being picked on, and it wouldn't matter to us. But do you remember ever seeing somebody in school being picked on? Somebody that was just a nobody? Have you ever, have you ever felt shame for that person as you see it happening? It's hard to watch. And you know that you should do something, but honestly, you just don't want to be associated with it. And you know, I mean, and, and like I said, this isn't right. I hope that we know better. But you know what I'm talking about. Is that it's hard. People want to, people want to associate with winners. I don't want to be associated with losers. And what David is saying is, I was a king. And when I was a king, I know he was my God. And he was there for me. But I'm not... I don't feel like a king right now. I'm just a worm. I'm just scorned and despised, and perhaps my shame is just too much. And the sad thing is, is that what he sees is that his, when he, his experience told him that those who trust would not be put to shame, but his trust in God is the source of the shame and the reproach that's being cast on him. But man, you see him, he's just in and out as he's, as he's processing this. Yet, those words, yet, these are the connecting words that tell you he's not, he, he comes over here and then he's, he's back. And this is, this is what it's like when you're going through these kind of things. When we try to make sense of things that sometimes are senseless. And David is trying to process his way through this. He's trying to pray his way through this. And by the way, I didn't mention this. But do you notice who he's, who he's talking to and who he's not talking to? Now, I don't know what his conversations would have been like uh, before bed with his wife as, uh, you know, about all of this that was going on. I'm sure that he had friends that he would talk to about this. But something that's really notable, and as we consider, should I tell God about what's going on in my life, is that that's the one place that seems appropriate that David would take this, is to God himself. He didn't go talk about it with everyone else. He went straight to God and he said, this is what's going on in my life. And he says in verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. When he's praying to God, he's not presumptive. But I think there's two things that he's, that, that he's saying. One, part of this is that he's telling God that we have something special. I know that you love me and I love you and I've known that my whole life. You notice the words that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount to describe God? Father. I mean, if you read the whole Old Testament, there's times that the concept of God being our Father is there, but mostly it's, it's His name. Mostly it's His holiness. Mostly that's what's on display. When Jesus talks about God and when He's telling us, He's talking about a God who is our Father and who cares for us like we're His children. And so if you're a parent, don't you want your kids to tell you when something's going wrong? 
We don't think it's ungrateful, do we? For our kids to tell us, hey, this is something that hurts. He's telling God, you've loved me and I've loved you since I was a baby. And the other side of that is, is that remember the question, is God the God of the nobodies? I think part of the answer is he was a God when I was a baby. When I had absolutely nothing to offer. Before I ever was a king, before I was even a shepherd, he was my God. And he came down and he condescended to, to my place where I had nothing to offer. And once again, he draws on his experience, what he knows to be true about his God when he has doubts. And when you pray, do that. Go to him and know that he's your father. Know that he cares and draw on your own personal experience and know that he loves you and that he's always loved you. And that's what David's doing here. And so finally we come to it. And to this point, I just want you to notice, I mean, the Psalms are basically a prayer book. It'll teach us how to pray. And David has a problem. How do we come to God with our problems? How do you, how do, you do it? I'll tell you how I do it. I do it the same way sometimes I try to do when my wife is telling me her problems. I try to fix it, right? I try to supply the answers. And so what I'll do is, is that I'm in a situation right now, and this hurts, and this isn't right, and this is what needs to happen. And I go and I ask God, and I say, I want, I, I, God, I, I, I'm here. It's bad. This is what I need you to do. Have you seen David do that? Have you seen him supply any answers to this point? The only thing that he's asked is the bookends to this section in verse 11 is be not far from me. We're going to read 12 through 18. Look at what's in verse 19. Be not far from me. That's the solution in David's mind. Whatever it is that's going on in his life is too complex. And honestly, maybe that's the reason sometimes we go through suffering. And so we can be brought, brought to a place where we know we don't have the answers. You like to be in control of your life to a fault? I do. You think that you can be a self-made man, the promise of the American dream or woman? When we're brought low, we come face to face with the reality that I am not in control. There's so much that goes on that I can't control, and there's so many things that are going to happen to me, and I won't know the answer. And when we find ourselves in that place, that's where God can say, I can do something. When you find yourself completely bottomed out, and you realize that you don't know the answer, that's when God can step in and say, I can take it from here. So, what does David do? He doesn't ask him. He just tells him a description of what's going on. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of uh, Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. 
They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I know as we read that that there's so many like just triggering phrases in there that, that it's we know, right? We know who is going to uniquely fulfill all of this. But before we go there, remember, David felt all of this. This was his real experience. And whatever he was going through and whatever he saw externally, the way that others were treating him, he's telling God that this is what it feels like to me. This is what's going on in my life. And he doesn't tell him that I know the answer. He just tells him. And I think that sometimes when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we, we see things that are difficult and shocking. Like Jesus telling us that if somebody slaps you on the cheek, are you supposed to just be the last man standing? Are you supposed to knock his, knock his teeth out? No. He says you're supposed to turn the other cheek. But we can go so far that what we think he means is that we're supposed to smile and say, this is okay. That's fine. What you did is totally okay. I'm okay with that. So go ahead and do it again. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And the Psalms, if they teach us anything, it's that there is real injustice in this world. That bad things do happen to good people. And the longer that we live, the more that we know that that's true. And we don't know what to do with it. I've lost count of all the shootings that have happened. I'll never forget where I was when I heard about Sandy Hook. That stuff's hard to process, isn't it? When kids are the victims of other people's bad decisions and hate and violence. And sometimes I'm in the crosshairs. And if I live long enough, I probably will be. And some of you know that all too well. God's not asking you to pretend like it's okay. He wants to hear from you. And it's okay that you tell him this isn't right. What's going on isn't right. And as I said in verse 19, he starts where he, he, he basically finishes where he started, which is the only answer that he can come up with is that I just need you to be near me, God. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now there, at the, you may have noticed that there was a tone shift there at the end of 21. And we'll get there. But before we get there, he is still very much in it. And what he tells God is... You can just kind of read it off. It's almost just like bullet point right here. It's 
don't be far off. Come near. Help me. Deliver me. Save me. And that's it. He doesn't say, I need you to you know, dethrone my son who has taken over. Um, you know, I, I need you to you know, take care of the kind of macro-political situations here that have come to bring the Philistines in here. And, and he doesn't say any of that. And I don't know, maybe sometimes he would be specific. And I think that's okay that sometimes we, we take something to God and we, we ask him knowing that maybe I don't know the answers. But, but I think we need to do this a lot more than we do. And that is go to God and just tell him, this is what's happening and I just need you to deliver me. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know how to say, I don't even know what to ask for. But I don't believe that you would actually forsake me. So even though I feel a distance right now, God, I'm just going to ask you to come near and meet me here in this place. And it's in that place, it's because David took it to God that he can know with confidence that you have rescued me. Again, wouldn't it be a shame if we thought of Psalm 22 as the psalm that's about a God who forsook someone? Because this is where David has been headed all along is that when he was hurting, he took it to God, and it's because he took it to God that he knows, when I didn't have the answers, I didn't know what to do, I, had, I, I, was, I was completely and totally at the depths of despair, and you answered, you rescued. And so what can he say now? Verse 22, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you, you who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. And I think that this is probably one of the most important verses in the whole psalm. Because this is the testimony of the one who, who thought maybe God had left and asked for Him to come near. And he thought, maybe, what if I'm just too low? What if because I'm so despised and so scorned that he won't meet me in this place? Look at what his testimony is. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The Psalms are interesting because they start on a really, I mean, you have Psalm 1, it's just beautiful, and it's telling you that you're going to have to meditate on these. That you, if you want to be like that tree planted by, by a stream, that you need to just take God's Word and just sit with it. And that's how you need to approach the Psalms. You sit with them. And I had not done that with this Psalm. <laughs> I, that's why I had such a misconception about it. I was always just thinking about the, 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 the suffering and how God... Uh, how he's asking, why, why have you forsaken me? And because I hadn't sat with it, because I hadn't meditated, I missed, I missed the point. And then Psalm 2 is about this king. And if you're, again, if you're in exile and you're reading this, you're like, yes, the Messiah. He's going to come with a, uh, uh, this, this, with, a, with a mighty hand and a, a rod iron, and, and he is going to just 
execute justice on all the nations who do not bow to him. And so you're ready, you're kind of primed and ready to go, and then what follows are a bunch of psalms where David is running for his life. (laughs) You think, yes, like the king is going to be installed, and everything is going to be good, and everything is going to be right, and then you go straight into it in Psalm 3, and then what follows is a lot of psalms where things are just not good. And David is expressing uh, that, that, that he's going through something and that he is suffering. And the thing about it is, is that what that does, and this is the cycle of the Psalms, is that where Psalms ends is just an explosion of praise. You know, just go read the last little block of five Psalms and look, and, and, and it is a call to praise. Everyone, join in. And we did that tonight, and it felt so good to do that, to sing with you guys and to praise our God. And you notice that twice here, what comes into focus is he was by himself and he wasn't sure if God was there, but where is he now? He's with the congregation. And what is he doing? He's declaring his praise. And he's inviting everybody else to join in. And he's saying, I can relate. If you thought that I couldn't because I was a king, you get that? Can you imagine David, if it's just David on the throne and he never goes through anything, can you imagine him going and saying, God is good? Can you imagine the common people well, of course you would say that. Can you imagine the people from exile? Of course, David said that. He was a king. And of course, the silver spoon, the lap of luxury, of course, that was everything was always good. Well, we know better because we know the story of David's life. And so David is saying, I, whatever you feel, I have felt it too. And when I went down and fell from my high place that I was in my throne, and when I was in the depths of Sheol, the grave. What I can tell you is that he, there's no place that's too low for him to come find you. That if everyone else abandons you, he wouldn't do that. And when you cry to him, he hears. That if you do put your trust in him, I don't care what other people say, he will deliver you in his time. And so with the congregation, it's in there that now his experience becomes the mode by which everyone can praise. Do you talk about the deliverance that God has done in your life? Have you told each other? You know, we're programmed, because it's polite, that when you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to tell you good, right? And that's just what we do. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean that we're not genuine. It's just what we do. And I think that's okay. If, if, if on a Sunday morning you're going around and I'm doing good, I'm doing good, I'm doing good, that's okay. But don't, let, don't stop there. You find these people who love you and who trust you. This is your congregation. And you tell them what you're going through. And when you tell them, you tell them, I'm going to pray to God, you pray too for me. And then you wait. And when you come through the other side, you speak his praises. And you lift it up together. And then you call the rest of this world into that beautiful fellowship and into that praise. And testifying about the goodness of God. 
And now the end here. We wrap it up. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him. There's a repeated word here, by the way, so be paying attention. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the moment in the psalm where the reader says, All right, so you're saying that everyone, all, there's the word, all, all are going to praise him at some point. All are going to discover that he is the God who delivers his people. All, every single person. He says something that's the one thing in this psalm. If you question his credibility, you said, oh, David, you're a king. You don't understand. He'd say, well, yeah, I do. You know, one time I pretended to be crazy, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose my life. Do you, do you know the story about how my son ran me out of my kingdom? I know what it's like to become a nobody. But then he says, verse 29, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And that's the point. You say, David, you can't possibly know that. How could you know? You may can speak of his goodness and his deliverance for as long as you have breath, but how can you know for sure that our God will deliver beyond the grave? And this is where the Holy Spirit's winking at us, isn't it? Because we know that there is somebody. And that's where Jesus, on the cross saying these words, praise this prayer in a unique way. And I believe he teaches us something. I believe that he taught us in that moment that he was truly human. That the thing that we all share as humans is suffering. If you live long enough, And Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that that is actually the point. Why would Jesus come down from heaven? Why would he be made lower than the angels? It's so he could call us brothers. 22, I will tell your name to my brothers. That the experience of suffering is how when we say, how could you possibly understand, God? From your place enthroned on the praises of Israel, high and holy, how could you know what it's like? And through Jesus, he says, I do know. And at my toughest hour, I found comfort in the testimony of a king who was brought to the ground. And the same Jesus who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the same Jesus who said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Another reference to a psalm about trust. Trust that he will deliver even from Sheol, the word that they use for the grave. So I don't know where you are right now. All I know is that suffering 
it finds us out eventually, doesn't it? And so if you're young, maybe you haven't experienced it yet. I'll say to you, prepare yourself for the day that's coming with your congregation. And be ready to know that even in your darkest hour, that God will not forsake you. To those who are on the other side of it, who have been through suffering and have come through, tell of his deliverance to the congregation. Praise him and lift up those praises and give the testimony that says he is the God of even the nobodies in my lowest place. And if you're in it right now and you're suffering and you're hurting, then learn from Jesus and cry out to God. He wants you to. He wants to hear from you like a father to a child. And tell him what you're going through. And know that you don't have to have an answer. And believe that even if you hold on to whatever it is, like Paul did, whatever his thorn of the flesh was, he took it with him to the grave, it seems. Believe that even if you take whatever it is that you're suffering with right now to the grave, that he'll come even to that place. He does not despise the affliction of the afflicted and he'll deliver us even from death. And that's the good news and that's why we praise him. Thank you for your attention. If you are not in fellowship with him, then you don't have the benefit. And this life is going to be nothing but despair for you because how are you supposed to process all that's gone wrong in this world if you don't believe that there's a God who is making it right and who will make it right one day? And if you want to be in a relationship with that God and you want to prepare for that day when all things will be made new and everything will be made right, you can do it tonight. You can be baptized and you can be his child and you can start talking to him and tell him whatever it is that's hurting you. And if you've fallen away, if suffering has, has beaten you down, you can come forward. I know that everybody here will just receive you uh, arms wide open and love. Um, whatever you need, come forward as we stand and sing.